hello again, everyone, and welcome to this, the 85th episode of the Cotton Companion Podcast. This year is thankfully winding down quickly, which means things are going to start gearing up for 2021 crops sooner than we realize. I'm Jim Stedman, Senior Editor of Cotton Grower, and as always, I'm joined by Cotton Grower's Editor, Frank Giles. Frank, I know you and I are still running fast and furious to finish some things up before Christmas. How are you holding up? Busy, busy, busy is the is the buzzword of the day. Um, Say, so, you know, we have a lot going on this time of year uh, through the magazines and different things, but uh, keeps us out of trouble. Uh, we'll we'll enjoy Christmas in the new year and and get back to a more normal schedule and and hopefully get caught up, say around February or March or April or someplace around <laughs> or, there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, as you know, as as we discussed several episodes ago. Uh, EPA approved new five-year registrations back in late October for three dicamba products for Extendamax, Ingenia, and Tavium, uh, all those for over-the-top use in dicamba-tolerant cotton and soybeans. Now, depending on your point of view, that decision was either met with a sense of relief uh, with a lot more questions and, of course, the usual amount of outrage that, uh, that we normally get from certain groups. And now the dust has settled a bit on that decision, we felt like it was time to bring in some experts to clarify the benefits, the changes, and maybe some of the holes in those new, in that new label, as well as offer a few tips on uh, getting next year's crop off to a good start. So joining us here shortly in our virtual studio uh, will be Dr. Stanley Culpepper, Extension Weed Specialist with University of Georgia, Dr. Tom Barber, Extension Weed Specialist with the University of Arkansas, and Dr. Peter Dotre, is professor of weed science at Texas Tech University and also AgriLife Extension Weed Specialist for the High Plains of Texas. Should be a great discussion. We hope you'll stay tuned to hear what they have to say. But now, here's a short message from our sponsor, Phytogen. Phytogen is pleased to sponsor the Cotton Companion, bringing you the latest news to help you thrive all season long. Thanks as always to the folks at Phytogen for supporting the Cotton Companion. And now we're going to turn things over to our colleague, Robin Sittberg, for a custom content interview with Dr. Ken Leger, Phytogen Cotton Development Specialist in West Texas and Oklahoma. Hello, I'm Robin Sittberg of Meister Media Worldwide, publisher of Cotton Grower Magazine. I'm here today with Dr. Ken Leger, Phytogen Cotton Development Specialist who covers parts of West Texas and Southwest Oklahoma. Welcome back to the program, Ken. Glad to be here. Well, I know your area in the Southwest experienced a lot of extreme weather in 2020. So what can you tell us about the 2020 season? Well, really throughout the Southwest, we began the season with a fairly severe drought that uh, uh, either uh, reduced the amount of dryland acres that were even attempted or uh, they were soon abandoned. So a lot of acres simply didn't happen. A lot of the irrigated acreage really had to have water uh, all year long. So it was an expensive crop. We had a lot of heat units but heat units without water are, are not as effective. Then uh, that, that drought persisted nearly all season long. Then in early September, we had a cold snap that really uh, caught some of the earlier maturing varieties and, and fields a lot more harsher than others. Then really the brick wall came down in late October where the area experienced a widespread ice storm, snowstorm uh, that really halted the, the season. I guess the bright spot is that fiber quality has been really, really good due to a dry harvest season. Well, it's no secret that farmers can't control a lot of things, um, especially in terms of weather and sometimes even disease and insect pressure. 
Uh, so what can phytogen cottonseed offer growers in terms of um, keeping their yields up and, and keeping things more stable in uncertain conditions? Well, certainly a lot of the stability for phytogen varieties come from a lot of our traits and technologies that, that are built into seed, uh, starting with early season vigor. This was important, especially in the drought conditions that we were planting into, uh, that early season vigor that phytogen is so famous for, did help establish some stands. Uh, all of our phytogen Y-Strike 3 flex enlist varieties all offer that Y-Strike 3 insect protection. Uh, we did have some bowl worms move in the area, so that was nice to have uh, in plant protection. Of course, our enlist weed control system that offers tolerances to enlist herbicides, glyphosate, glyphosate, help those growers have a lot of options in keeping those fields clean. And then really our phytogen breeding traits with bacterial blight resistance, especially root knot nematode resistance, uh, vert wilt tolerance are very important in helping stabilize that yield uh, across all these fields. And of course, we're really excited. We just recently launched our Reniform Nematode Resistance uh, that we're ramping up in a big way in 2021. So we're, we're looking forward to that as well. Well, those all sound like excellent tools for growers to use to keep up their yield and quality, even when conditions aren't so great. Um, I'd love to talk to you more about some varieties. Um, would you be willing to come back for another episode? You bet, look forward to it. All right. Well, we've got to wrap up for now, but uh, growers can always go to phytogen.com for more information. And thank you, Ken, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Robin. And thank you, Ken, for joining us for that interview segment. And before we get to our panel discussion, Frank, just a quick look at what's happening in cotton since our last episode. Yeah, Jim, we've got a couple of items here. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has declined to reevaluate its July 2020 ruling upholding the EPA registration of Enlist Duo herbicide for over-the-top use of on Enlist cotton, corn, and soybeans. In a two-to-one judgment, the Ninth Circuit panel uh, has ruled, ruled that the premix of 2,4-D and glyphosate did not violate federal law. Environmental groups, including the Natural Resources Defense Council and Center for Food Safety, appealed the ruling and asked for a larger panel of judges to review the case. Uh, that appeal was declined on November 18th. The original suit was filed in 2017. The groups challenged EPA's decision on enlist duo, including volatility and increased herbicide use and environmental impacts. The majority ruling dismissed all but one argument and directed EPA to reevaluate the herbicide's impact on monarch butterflies, but left the registration intact. Any other appeals would be directed to the Supreme Court. Finally, the National Cotton Council has voiced its approval of the selection of Representative David Scott of Georgia as the chairman of the House Ag Committee for the 117th Congress and Representative Glenn Thompson from Pennsylvania was selected as the committee's ranking member. National Cotton Council Chairman Kent Fountain acknowledged Scott's intimate knowledge of production agriculture and the challenges faced by today's farmers and about Scott Thompson's years of service on the Ag Committee and their work in crafting several farm bills. With that, let's move ahead and open the virtual studio to today's guests. We have Dr. Stanley Culpepper, who's Extension Weed Specialist with the University of Georgia, Dr. Tom Barber, who's Extension Weed Specialist with the University of Arkansas, 
and Dr. Peter Dotre, who's professor of weed science at Texas Tech University and AgriLife Extension Weed Specialist for the High Plains of Texas. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Cotton Companion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's been an interesting year when it comes to cotton and, and especially to the dicamba products. Uh, so let's let's step back to June for just a, a moment. So what was your first thought when you, you heard about the Ninth Circuit Court ruling uh, that vacated the, the dicamba labels? And, and quite honestly, were you surprised? For us in Arkansas, um, it didn't really have a large effect because our state plant board that uh, handles pesticide regulation in the state had a current May 25th cutoff for all dicamba applications. So as far as Arkansas producers, the only ones that were affected by that ruling were those that farm inside the levee, the Mississippi River levee, uh, because at that time they were able to make applications under a permit process. So as far as our growers, technically those were the only ones affected per our regulation. You know, for Georgia, it was a huge deal. Uh, we were right in the middle of the season. We had been fortunate over the previous few weeks, we were getting good rain, so the crop was doing good, but also the weeds were growing exceptionally well, you know, including Palmer amaranth. So uh, my first thought, thought was, oh my, how long do we have to get to use it? We should make it through the season. And then as we learned, that became very, very challenging. So uh, if the EPA hadn't come to bat for our growers, it would have been catastrophic for us uh, if we'd have lost that tool in the middle of the season. It's one thing if you know you're not going to have it, but it's completely different if you've got a program, a good program set up, you're right in the middle of that program and you lose a tool, uh, that leads to a catastrophe when you're fighting weeds like Palmer Amaranth. So again, kudos to the EPA for supporting uh, our farmers and at least allowing us to use the product to get us through the season. And I would echo some of those comments. Uh, I would say, you know, not surprised that that changes uh, were going to be made, surprised that they were made overnight. And uh, growers have a game plan as to how they're gonna manage weeds and suddenly a major tool was, was removed overnight. So, so I, think, I think we were uh, surprised at the extent of the change, but then you know, okay with the fact that growers could use the current supply. And I think for the most part, for us to be able to use it through the end of July, I think most of the applications were made when they would have normally been made. So uh, it turns out, I think we were able to control weeds pretty well as long as we could use existing stocks. We're all glad that worked out the way it did uh, just to, to get everybody through the season. And I'm sure since then you had, uh, you, each of you had some opportunity to provide some input to EPA about this, the re-registration that came in October. What types of things were you able to provide to the agency? What did they ask you for? Uh, and did you have any indication about when this new label announcement was coming or, or was it sort of a, again, a surprise? You know, we've been successful working with the EPA for many years now, not only uh, the three of us, but there are many members of the We Science Society and the We Science Society as an organization has been working very closely with the EPA since really prior to reg the first registration in 2016. So, uh, we've all had an opportunity to share our unbiased research with them. The focus this go around was really on volatility, or more importantly, how to reduce volatility. Um, so we've met with them several times as a group, as an organization, being the We Science Society, and they have been nothing but respectful to us. Uh, they've asked a lot of really good questions with our research and our data. And of course, you know, let's be clear, one of the challenges with this technology is the data in Georgia doesn't necessarily the same as it is in Arkansas or Texas, right? So 
understanding the environmental conditions that influence a, a product like dicamba has been so part of our growing experience. So again, we've been sharing information for many years. Uh, they have been wonderful evaluating it, asking questions. Their questions drive us to generate better research to answer their questions, right? So it's been a, a great relationship. As far as knowing what was going to happen, uh, you know, there were several within the organization of EPA that publicly told us about when it was going to come out, uh, when they were going to announce uh, the or potential re-registration of the product. Uh, I really didn't know it was going to happen in Georgia until just really right before that. So that was really exciting for our guys, for them to come into Georgia and to basically say, hey, we get to continue with a very important tool to support the, the family farm. Yeah, I think you got the notice on that meeting about the same time I did. Which was like, this was like you know, six hours before before they were wanting to do it. So, you know, it was very well organized. <laughs> Definitely, Tom. What about you? Well, and with my extension appointment, I didn't do a lot of the work on the volatility type research. At least the last couple of years, I haven't. But I, I know that, uh, or I'm I'm pretty certain at least that uh, some of our researchers provided some data to them on that. I think, you know, as far as the way they've uh, moved the labels to, you know, recognizing the importance of the pH buffers and, and keeping that pH up at a level where it reduces uh, volatility. Uh, we, we knew for the last couple of years, or we've known for the last couple of years, I guess, that adding glyphosate to the tank really reduces that pH and, and thus increases the volatility. And Stanley's right. I mean, in the Mid-South, it seems like it just acts as a, it's, you know, it's a different environment and it just acts a little different than it might in, in Georgia or Texas. Plus, we have a lot more sensitive crops like soybean around that that is not it shows up on you know it not necessarily that you're going to take a yield loss every time but it's very visual and, and it's very sensitive and so uh, you know Arkansas has a history ever since 2017 of being uh, having the most restrictive uh, dicamba regulations and so uh, we know it's an important tool for our state we have to you know I'm glad I'm not making the regulation I'll be honest um, but you know, we, we have a big division in the state of growers that want to use it and growers that think that it's costing them yield every year. And you know, uh, it's been that way ever since 2017. And so it's just been a uh, an interesting process to be a part of, to say the least. But but you know, I think you know the EPA looking at the data, realizing you know working with the companies, but realizing that that some things needed to change on the label. Peter, what about West Texas? I'm not sure I have much more to add, which is great. I always following colleagues that, that are very active and know an awful lot. I, I would say, you know, from a personal research standpoint, I, I'm not involved in, in a lot of that, uh, the hoop house type research. I think folks in Texas, maybe uh, around College Station are, are doing some of that work. I think Stanley made the comment, I think the communication has been very good, both as weed scientists across the country and then uh, communication with allied industry and EPA. So. Uh, I, I think uh, that the communication was there. Lots of discussions took place on the importance of, of the product in, in, in various weed management programs. Uh, wasn't surprised when, when the label came out, I guess. It seemed like a lot of us uh, had been having communications with what the new label may look like. Uh, and when the labels came out, uh, although I'm not sure there are any easier to interpret than, than some of the previous labels, but I think some of the things that were in there eventually when you could find it uh, were, were not a big Good. surprise. Now another new label has some details in there about 
cutoff dates for application in cotton and soybean, uh, some new guidelines for buffer zones. Uh, I'll be honest, my first reaction when, when I went through that and, and saw those, those uh, that the buffer zone things might be a little bit restrictive in certain cotton geographies based on, on the way they're written. Are they going? Is that going to have any impact on, on use in your areas by expanding those those buffer zones? I mean, you mentioned a couple of things there, Jim. You mentioned first the, the cutoff date, then you mentioned the buffer zone. I, you know, I'm in a region that grows uh, a lot of cotton, probably three and a half million acres in a hundred mile radius from the Lubbock uh, area, and, and and most of all of that is cotton. So so the actual buffer zones probably not as, as critical for us or the expansion of the buffer zones as critical as, as maybe other parts of the state and, and across the US. Probably was what was a bit more concerning for us was the, was the restriction uh, following a July 30th uh, timeframe. You know, we start planting cotton in South Texas in you know, January, February, we're planting cotton up here until you know, late June. So. Uh, some of the latest planted cotton, that window for post-emergent applications may be, you know, 40 to 45 days. And I think for some of those folks, uh, it's a pretty narrow window. But, but again, downstate and, and, and in other states, uh, maybe that hasn't uh, been viewed as a very big deal. Well, to me, I, I think they got it. You know, if, if Arkansas was going off the federal label, the soybean and the cotton should be flip-flop. I think we could, you know as far as a weed management perspective, if we haven't killed the pigweed by the end of June, we're, we've lost the game already. And, and so, but in soybean, we're just like what Peter said with cotton, we're, we plant soy, you know, we make the joke in August that we're 95% planted and 5% uh, harvested. We're still planting soybean maybe in, in August sometimes. But, but uh, you know, to us, we're laying by cotton around the 4th of July. Everybody expect, you know, the, the goal, here in the Mid-South is to get that first bloom by the fourth a lot of times, which means we've probably laid everything by and got the irrigation pipe rolled out. So uh, that's usually our quote unquote, if we if we didn't have the more restrictive cutoff, you know, I think the growers would pretty much cut it off themselves by the end of June uh, from a dicamba standpoint. Yeah, you know, I would say in Georgia and probably most of the Southeast, uh, these restrictions are quite problematic. I'm a little bit like Dotre that we plant, I mean, we'll even plant cotton behind wheat, right? So the cutoff date is really problematic for us big time, but also we have really small fields, right? And if you have really small fields and you increase the size of those buffers, it's really problematic. So I have problematic, more problematic and most problematic going. And I am just hopeful that what the EPA has said about willing to work with the states to try to uh, address some of these concerns um, is workable because that's the approach we're going to try to take to soften some of these restrictions, especially in a state that really hasn't had any issues with, with all target movement, at least so far. So again, we've talked about it, different environments play such a role uh, one size label does not by any means fit us all. We need to be able to regionalize. We maybe even need to be able to write a, a state component of that label. And, and that looks like that's what the EPA has offered to work with us. And we're certainly going to find out if they stick to that. Um, is, your, is your state plant board going to, uh, to hang on to try to hang on to the state dates or are they going to, to work within the limits of this label? Well, 
fortunate for this interview, they met last week, I guess. The third, I think, is when they met, second or third. And um, they tried several different ways to, or there were several different boats, I guess I should say, to change the current cutoff date and situation, but uh, all of them failed to pass. So right now, not saying it can't change, but right now it's the same regulations as last year. Um, so which, well, with the exception of inside the levee went full, full label inside the Mississippi levee, they had to change that. But other than that, it's uh, currently it sets as a May 25th cutoff date for all dicamba in the state of Arkansas. Peter, any, any indication there's gonna be some, uh, some movement or challenges to some of those dates out in, in your area? So, so we've had a few conferences already with the Texas Department of Agriculture. We've got another conference set up uh, here in a couple of days. You know, our challenge has been to go back and, and review uh, some of the uh, environmental data uh, that typically we see early mornings, late in the day, you know, general, you know, wind speed issues. Also trying to again, focus on some of the later planted cotton and, and what things might mean to some of those regions. So I, I think there's a lot of things that are, are really still on the table. Uh, last year uh, in the state, uh, th there was a 24C that allowed for some of the restrictions to be a, a little bit loosened. And, and, and certainly those are some possibilities, I think, for growers here uh, in 2021. Now, we, we talked briefly just a moment ago about some of the, uh, the requirements now to add buffering agents to, to, the, uh, to the mix and to be able to show, uh, document that, that, that those products are in. Uh, what do you, how's that going to help? Uh, is it, are your growers going to uh, go along with that and, and, and keep, keep the records they need to keep and, and work hard to keep the volatility down? I mean, for us, I think the ones that have been following the rules will continue to follow our rules. The ones that haven't been following our rules will continue to not follow the rules. So I, that's just been my experience uh, since this uh, deal with Dicamba has started for us big time in, in really 2015 when they started spraying it illegally before anything was registered. So, um, you know, I, I think that, yes, there's a lot of, lot, probably the majority of our growers want to want to follow the rules and do the right thing. And, and uh, I think they'll put the buffering. Plus the companies have told, well, at that plant board meeting last week, they mentioned that they would provide the buffering agent. So I don't know if it's gonna be, you get a pallet of Ingenia, you get a pallet of buffering agent. I don't know how that works, but, I, but that was more or less the message that was, at least that's the way I understood the conversation at the plant. You know, for us, uh, we did a lot of work on that this summer and we got some really cool data and we got probably more importantly for the grower, we got some really cool pictures. And, and this is ironic because I'm in a state that I or my colleagues, we haven't been on what we think is a volatility drift issue. You know, my colleagues in the Mid-South, they think volatility is a, a huge uh, co component of off-target movement. I don't have a single one, but the research we did uh, showing how much those products can influence potential volatility of dicamba was fascinating. It was some of the neatest stuff that I've done in years. Uh, again, it's ironic for me, but uh, I think once we share some of that information, show some of those pictures, you know, my, my growers in a diverse state like this one, you know, we grow 33 different vegetable crops that make the farm gate value report. Our growers want these products to stay exactly where we put them. 
Uh, and I think we're committed to doing whatever we need to do, because if we don't, you know, long term, the stability of pesticides is challenged. So we all need to step up when the science is in place. And I've been fortunate to see a lot of work of a lot of others. And it that data looks a lot like ours. So the challenge that we have that I see going into 2021 is there's a rate by environmental interaction. Right. So if you have an environment where you're getting just a little bit of volatility and you use a lower rate, you're fine. But if you use a lower rate and you're in one of these really problematic environmental conditions where you get a lot of volatility, you may not get as much out of it as you, you think you will. And as scientists, I think that'll take a year or two for us to, number one, understand all the products. Number two, understand all the rates by environment. So I don't think we go into 2021 having all the answers. We just have some really cool research, some really cool data across the country that shows the benefit from these products and what they can do. And I think once our growers see that, uh, they, they'll be impressed. So I too uh, am anxious to see some of the data coming out of uh, Dr. Culpepper's program. And I know there's a lot of others uh, that are doing similar type of work across the country. Uh, I would say in Texas, I mean, the, the, the growers, they want to do the right thing. So as they're learning more about uh, temperature inversion, you know, possibilities and, and the sensitivity of, of some of the surrounding uh, vegetation, uh, the importance of the spray nozzles and other things in the tank and the boom height and all of those things. Uh, I think they want to do the right thing. And, and as long as uh, we're uh, presenting the information to them in some of the auction certification trainings that are mandated uh, in the state, uh, I think those are things that they will take them from the classroom to the field uh, and, and again, doing the right thing to ensure the long-term use of some of these technologies. You know, we've been down the glyphosate resistance road, um, starting to hear some uh, talk of dicamba resistance in spots. Uh, what are you hearing in or seeing in your particular areas with that? I just right across the river, uh, my counterpart, Larry Steckel, I think they have identified it over there. I'm sure that we have it somewhere in Arkansas. We haven't officially identified it uh, yet. What I can tell you is we can't, we do see more size response and, and rate response than we did when we first started looking or evaluating dicamba over the top of Palmer uh, here in the Mid-South. Uh, even at some of our station locations that I've worked at for the last uh, 13, 14 years, uh, I see a little difference now than, than the response I used to get. Um, so I, I, I'm sure it's just a matter of time for us to identify it. We have six-way resistant Palmer now in some populations, uh, but so far haven't confirmed dicamba resistance. You know, you talk back about the buffer zones. That's one reason, at least me as a weed scientist, hates buffer zones because how do I control that pigweed in that buffer zone? And, you know, to me, it's just a, it's a breeding ground for resistance where you get reduced rates or you're trying to use something else that's already marginal uh, in controlling it. And so uh, I think, you know, I, I'm not going to step out on a limb and say it's going to drastically increase, but I think it could potentially increase uh, resistance uh, in those buffer zone areas. And so, you know, we're on the lookout. Obviously, if, if our guys are spraying past the cutoff date just a little bit and they've got an issue with control, <laughs> they're not going to call me and say, hey, I missed this pigweed with dicamba. But, you know, going through some just I visit with consultants on a daily basis during the season. And, and what I hear from them is, you know, the, 
there's more and more follow-up applications uh, than there used to be when we when we first started spraying spraying this, you know, closer to the initial application. So that tells me that, you know, if we're, we may not be seeing resistance yet, but anytime you see that increase in tolerance a little bit, then, uh, you know, it's, it's knocking on the door more or less. Well, I guess the good thing in there is, is there are other tools that, uh, that are available uh, to the growers. Well, that, that's right. I mean, and, and so our pro, you know, our growers have gone into the season the last, well, in, in 18, the cutoff date was April 15th for dicamba. And so, um, you know, the last couple of, well, yeah, the last couple of years, uh, it's been extended a little bit, but, but uh, so our growers are set up going into the season knowing that they're not gonna have a, an extended amount of, of control option and in, in cotton, if we don't plant, you know, with, with the current margins that you can make on cotton, we've got to be planted by May 25th or our yields start going down anyway. And so um, we're usually, we'll get an app planting application or at least one application in season of dicamba. We found that following that with a glufosinate application in 10 to 14 days does a pretty good job at cleaning up everything, you know, pigweed wise anyway, uh, the remaining pigweed. Now we still have to get through lay-by, um, but, uh, you know, generally we're using something else there at lay-by like diuron or, or maybe even gramoxone and diuron at that point. So, you know, our growers are set up going in. Our programs include two residuals up front uh, for pigweed management and then uh, group 15 residuals in season with whatever post we're using. And, and uh, that's been our program really since the onset of Roundup resistance, uh, you know, got widespread back in 2010 or so. Peter, Stanley, any resistance uh, issues popping up out your way? So Tom said a lot of things there, and, and, and I just want to echo a few of the things he said. First thing he said was, uh, we're on the lookout, and I think our growers are as well. You know, this is technology, the active ingredient that's been around for, you know, 60 years. So, so to me, there's no doubt we've already got some differences in, in tolerances across the amaranthus complex. Uh, we're looking for it. We've done some surveys. Uh, Tom also mentioned across the river, we, we, we've got some of that uh, seed from Dr. Steckel that we're, we're looking at overall you know, tolerance levels and making some comparisons to some of our populations. And I mean, I would definitely say it's, it, it's real. It's, it's a little different type of tolerance or resistance than, than maybe what we've seen with the, with the glyphosate where, you know, there's no symptomology that, that you see. I mean, some of these more tolerant plants still show a little bit of the epinasty and they may lay over, but they just stand back up pretty quickly. So, so if seeing is believing, we, we definitely know it's possible seeing some populations that thankfully have come from, from other places. I think our growers have, have always done a pretty good job at being diversified in, in their weed management approaches. E even in the Roundup uh, Ready era, we still had lots of growers who were using dinitroanilins uh, pre-plant incorporated and, and various PS2 inhibitors at plant, uh, never solely relied on glyphosate, although the, you know, the temptation was there and, and, and I understand that, I, I believe, 
to me, the, the auxin technologies, uh, th these are good herbicides, but to me, they're not great. So the, the one good thing is, I think we've known from the beginning that they need help. They need help with other uh, modes of action. And I think our guys have done that from the beginning. Uh, like Tom said, we too are also trying to find a, a fit still for the Glufosinate or the Liberty. We're probably in, in the part of the country where maybe it's, it's least consistent, you know, where it's hot and dry, humidity low, you know, the product just doesn't work quite as well. But with that said, uh, lots of projects trying to find a fit for Liberty. And I think a lot of them would, would, would suggest that you can replace one of the dicambas or, or one of the 240s uh, post-emergence. So um, I, I think we will continue to focus on a, a diversity of inputs. We will continue to look for weeds that are responding differently or perhaps shifts in some of the populations that we're trying to control and hopefully be, be after some uh, changes in input sooner rather than later so we don't run into the resistance issue that we ran into with the glyphosate. You know, for Georgia, the short answer is no. Uh, I'm not aware of any populations we're concerned about. Uh, now, one thing that has always gotten me, and I've always said, I'm kind of like what Dotre said, I've never been impressed with the activity of dicamba or 2,4-D on a Palmer amaranth bigger than two to three inches, right? So do we miss Palmer amaranth a lot? Sure we do, but I don't believe it's resistance. I think it's just natural tolerance. And because of that, you've had to build a good system, right? So we're diversified, we're integrated. Uh, my guys are doing quite well. You have a small percent of the population that sprays too much Roundup dicamba. If they keep it up, they're going to get us in trouble. You know, I, I'm not as old as Dotre, but I've about convinced myself we have resistance in Palmer Amaranth to every herbicide that we currently have or every herbicide that's going to be generated. It's already out there, right? And the populations we have, it's there. So whether we've confirmed it or not, you got to assume on your farm somewhere, there's a plant that's unique and it's, it's tolerant or resistant to whatever it is you want to do. And if you don't have the mentality to, to run a sound program, you're going to find it and you're going to be in a lot of trouble. But so far, things are going quite well for us. And, and I really think our rotation, we're really lucky uh, with this peanut rotation, right? There's no Di Campbell 240 using that peanut crop. And we do a lot of deep turning before the peanut crop. So our rotation is really, really helping our guys out. There's no doubt about that. And plus, we're using a lot of cover crops now that we didn't use in the past. So again, it's I think it's there. Uh, but but nothing is on the radar that, that uh, we need to be too excited about other than running sound management programs to protect every single chemistry that we use. Good deal. We, you know, we've talked a lot about pigweed and rightly so, but are there any other weeds in your particular areas that are, are rising or are popping up to be more problematic as of late? My, my biggest ones are at least in the last two years are occurring later in the season. We're in great shape through mid season. Uh, for the guys who decide they don't want to run a lay-by rig or a hooded road middle sprayer, we go over the top, we get the herbicide nicely on top of the cotton crop. It doesn't get the, the weeds that are up under the cotton crop or it doesn't get the residuals to the ground. And that's not a sound program. And when you run that program, what's happening to us is we're having uh, tropical spiderwort. It's really bingo day flower becomes a significant problem. And you may remember back before we had a lot of Roundup resistance in the Southeast, tropical spiderwort was moving as a, a troublesome weed just because it's a natural tolerance to glyphosate or Roundup products. But tropical spiderwort is, is back on our radar without a doubt. Morning Glory, again, is interesting and Morning Glory drives my point home. You know, Liberty's great on Morning Glory. Uh, Dicam was great on Morning Glory. 2,4-D's great on Morning Glory. 
So if you're not controlling morning glory, you need to think about what the problem is. And the problem is we got great control until lay-by when the morning glory is hiding under the cotton and we decide we want to spray over the top instead of running the lay-by rig, right? So we don't get covered. So there's a morning glory uh, late season and, and at harvest and you got a problem. And then the third one that's really hit me, and I think it's driven more because of the combination of glyphosate and dicamba, I'm having a lot more grass issues. Uh, and I think, I think potential antagonism it's antagonism related with the size of the grass when we spray. There's a relationship there for sure, but uh, that those conditions are causing me to have more grass problems that I have to address again in, in middle and later part of the year. And if you have grass escapes, and again, you choose to go over top and not cover those escape grasses, we don't kill them then, right? So we've gotta, we gotta help our growers understand, although it's slow, although it costs you more money, uh, in some of our fields, we gotta get these lay-by rigs and hooded sprayers on more acres and, and use that conventional chemistry that Tom was talking about to clean up some of these problems. No, I agree with that. Grasses for us are probably one of the main issues we have because we're such a big rice state. Not that we rotate a lot of rice and cotton. Most of our rice is rotated with soybean, but, but uh, barnyard grass, you know, is definitely our most troublesome weed in, in rice. And so uh, we're concerned. Uh, you know, for resistance buildup in that species. And so we, you know, it is, barnyard grass is present on probably just about every acre we grow. And so that's one of the weeds that, that we have to worry about towards the end of the year. Uh, prickly side is one we've seen, not as much in cotton, but in, in soybeans and cotton, the Liberty does a really good job taking it out. Uh, both dicamba and 2,4-D are fairly weak on side, Roundup's fairly weak on side. Uh, Liberty works good, but uh, in our, you know, straight extend soybean, uh, we don't have that as an option. Now with extend flex beans coming out, that will be an option uh, moving forward. So we've seen some more, I get more calls on prickly cider than I expected to get in the last few years. Uh, for us, and it, and it just may be an advent of the environment, but uh, yellow nut sedge has become a big issue for us. It may be due to the wetter springs that we've had the last two or three years. Um, in cotton, that's just one that, you know, until we get a good stand of cotton, there's really not a whole lot of answers for. Now, a mixture of glyphosate and glufosinate and Roundup and Liberty work pretty good if you spray it twice. And uh, so, uh, you know, that's how we're managing that at this point. Uh, and we have some ALS resistance in some of our annual sedges coming out again of our rice rotation in some, some areas. So. To me, those are the three that, that uh, we're most worried about. Um, Italian ryegrass, even though it's not in the season, we're having more and more issues with glyphosate resistant Italian ryegrass up, moving up further to the north in the state. And, and so um, that's a different type of year, different management program, but, but it all takes money to do. So uh, it's definitely hitting our growers radar right now. So some of the weeds that were mentioned, uh, you know, certainly we see here as well. Uh, you know, the morning glories, the nuts edges in particular. We've got a few other more unique weeds, uh, devil's claw, uh, perennials like silverleaf nightshade and Texas blueweed. Uh, but if I had to put two weeds at the top of the list that are probably becoming a little bit more troublesome, first one would be kochia. You know, we all are familiar with the, with the principle of starting clean, and, and, and you need to start clean because with the dicambas and the 2,4-Ds, you might not catch up. Uh, 
and and you certainly have to start clean with with the kochia but but there's populations that just aren't responding to glyphosate they're not responding to dicambas uh, like they used to uh, and it's, it's critically important to, to get them real early or or get them with something that they're more susceptible to so so that's definitely a weed that's on our radar um, Tumbleweed or Russian thistle maybe could be added as well, but you know Paraquat still does a good job as a pre-plant burndown. So, so I mentioned it, but I, I don't want that to be one of my top two. I, I want to throw out there that to me, maybe our second most troublesome weed is, is volunteer cotton. And it's knowing the technology that was planted last year and, and, and then the options that are available this year. So we've certainly been focusing in on uh, you know, controlling volunteer extend flex cotton, controlling volunteer enlist cotton, and just, you know, cotton in general, what products work well, uh, the importance of, of, of sequential applications to make sure uh, that that's not a weed that is present uh, at the end of the year. Now we've got this 2020 crop behind us. Uh, everybody's starting to look toward next year. Uh, with the, all this new labeling place, new technologies and things, uh, just real quick, what do growers need to keep in mind when they're planning their early season management, uh, any specific recommendations you'd make? Stanley, I'll let you let you start on that one. Well, you know, nothing's really changed. I will say we're still picking cotton, so we still got a little bit more to go, unfortunately, but uh, nothing, nothing's changed uh, for the program for next year. Uh, as far as if you're concerned about the regulations on the new Extendamax or uh, uh, Ingenia labels, Give us time. We're going to see if we can address some of those concerns with with data we've generated in the state. But you know what? You got to, you got to start clean. We prefer some tillage, or I prefer a cover crop in with the herbicides up front. But you start clean. I'm with Tom. You put two active ingredients that are effective on Palmer behind the press wheel. You make a timely post one, a timely post two with some residuals if you need it, and you run a daggone lay-by rig or a hooded sprayer where I can get me some diuron and some other chemistry in there. That lay-by application will protect that farm. I don't just mean protect the cotton crop. It'll protect the farm. And then of course, if we miss anything, you know, my guys understand the biology of Palmer amaranth as good as I do. You know, we confirmed resistance back in 2004. They know the difference between a male and a female. They're gonna run out there and pull the females up, carry them out of the field, uh, gonna pull the males up. We don't wanna be adding any seed to the seed bank. So the principle of the plan, diversified, integrated, has not changed, will not change. Uh, we'll try to address some of these significant uh, new restrictions uh, the best that we can. Cooper cooperation is the key to success. We'll cooperate with Department of Agriculture, we'll cooperate with industry, and of course our US EPA. Any other thoughts? Uh, I, I agree with Stanley 100%. I don't even know what I could add to that. But uh, I mean, our I'm sitting here trying to, we're doing all virtual county production meetings this year. And I was this morning making some slides and. Unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot different to say this year than I said last year. And so, you know, or the year before for that matter, the, the content hasn't changed that much. Uh, we're, our message is the same. Uh, sounds like the, on the same page as, as Stanley there in Georgia. And, and uh, we just have to roll with the punches. You know, I think where we, where we fall behind up front is, is up front and especially making that first post application. And one thing that I've seen with the cutoff date and, and the negative thing, you know, one of the negative things that may be uh, from our cutoff date is everybody wants to get as many pigweed up as possible before they hit it with that dicamba application. And just to echo some comments made earlier, I mean, 
But if you read the labels, I think it's two inch pigweed on most of these extend, uh, you know, either Extendamax or Ingenia. Uh, I've took some notes down on the labels and now I can't find it, but you know, it, small pigweed is what we're targeting. I, I think we lose a lot if we miss that first application, whether we're, and that's where we get behind, whether it's with dicamba or uh, glufosinate, either one, and, uh, or enlist in the enlist system. We've had some increases in enlist acres. So um, that first timely post to me is the most critical in setting the season up the rest of the year. And uh, if we lose, you know, if we lose the battle in a particular field, usually that's where, where we've lost it. Peter, anything you'd like to add? Well, I think uh, one of my colleagues earlier said something like, you know, the short answer is no, but then he continued to expand on a lot of things. So I, I guess I'm gonna say the short answer is there is nothing new, but, but I think it's continuing to discuss the importance of starting clean at plant herbicides, small weeds at the first application, like Tom just said, and it's, it, it's unfortunately not cutting corners in economic times when, when cut and corner temptation is certainly there, but it's, 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 the, it's the full rate, it's the appropriate carrier volume, uh, and it's making sure that at the end of the year, even later emerging small weeds aren't producing seed. Uh, I think we're doing a lot better at understanding the biology and the ecology of Palmer amaranth. Uh, some data that just came out recently from Dr. Bagafathinian at College Station would show, at least in Texas, the viability of the seed is very short, which I think is encouraging to try to suggest to growers that in a, in a short amount of time, much shorter than something like field bindweed, which is 100 years, but a short period of time, we can bring some of these weed seed levels in the soil down to a much more manageable level. Uh, yeah, there's millions of seed, but, but if, if we can, in a couple of years, bring some of the populations down to, you know, 5% of what they are today, I, I think we're making progress. We've still got good technologies. I think there's some new technologies that we might see here in a few years. You know, the key is being diversified and, and start strong and finish strong. Sounds great. And with, with that, uh, I think it's probably time to wrap this discussion up. Otherwise, we'll uh, we'll keep going all day, and I don't think uh, we'll probably start losing listeners at that point. Uh, Stanley, Tom, Peter, thanks for uh, for taking time to join us today. This is this has been great. Uh, appreciate it, and hope now that you can uh, take some time to relax just a little bit over the next few weeks before we start all this over again. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. All right. Once again, that wraps up this episode of the Cotton Companion Podcast. Thanks again to Stanley Culpepper, Tom Barber, and Peter Dotre for joining us in the virtual studio today. And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us. If you like what you hear on the Cotton Companion, please be sure to spread the word and tell your farmer friends about this podcast. And here's how you do it. You can find the Cotton Companion in three easy ways. First, go to cottongrower.com forward slash companion or simply click the podcast tab at the top of the homepage. Second, subscribe to our channel on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts these days. And three, sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, The Cotton Grower E-News, that's delivered to your email inbox every Tuesday morning. You can do that by going to cottongrower.com forward slash subscribe. Also, be sure to follow Cotton Grower on social media. We are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter. And on Facebook, you'll find us by searching for Cotton Grower Magazine.
Well, December issue of Cotton Grower should be hitting your mailboxes right along with your Christmas cards uh, any day now. And uh, Frank and I, as we, as we mentioned, are already hard at work on finalizing our January issue. This podcast is produced by Tyler Hatch and Kim Henderson, our talented colleagues back at the World Headquarters for Meister Media Worldwide in snowy Willoughby, Ohio. My name's Jim Stedman. His name's Frank Giles. And we'll be back with you in a few weeks for the next episode of The Cotton Companion. Until then, we wish you all the best and stay safe. Yeah, he works and he works and he works and he works all day. God made a farmer. Yeah, he works and he works and he works and he works and he works all day. God made a farmer. Phytogen thanks you for listening to this edition of The Cotton Companion. To learn how you can thrive with Phytogen, go to phytogen.com.